new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in and spending another hour of your day with us. We really appreciate it. I know our guests appreciate it too. Just want to say thank you for that. So I'm your host today, Dr. Joshua Black, and our other guest hosts couldn't be with us here today, but they're here in spirit as always. And before we start the podcast, just want to sort of send out a uh, I guess something new that we're actually trying out. So me, Sean, and then Darwin Dave, who's been on the podcast a couple times, have started another podcast called Grief Cafe. And on that podcast, we're talking about basically grief and loss in different parts of the world on things that are going on. And so it's up now. So if you do want to check it out, if you like what we're doing here, you may like that uh, and how we just sort of talk round table on different issues. We've done uh, mass shootings and then also forest fires. So um, there's going to be more. We're hopefully going to do it once a month, but you know, people get busy and stuff like that. But uh, we wanted a place to talk about stuff that's going on in the world. So feel free to check that out. So today on the podcast, we have Suzanne Falter, who is an author, speaker, blogger, and podcaster who has published both fiction and nonfiction, as well as essays. She also speaks about self-care and the transformational healing of crisis, especially in her own life after the death of her daughter, Teal. Her nonfiction books also include How Much Joy Can You Stand, The Joy of Letting Go, and Surrendering to Joy. She has a new book that just came out this year, actually probably a couple of weeks ago, and it's called The Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care, Do Less, Achieve More, and Live the Life You Want. <laughs> Her essays have appeared in O Magazine, The New York Times, Elephant Journal, Tiny Buddha, Thrive Global, among many, many others. Her fiction titles include Oaktown Girls, Series of Lesbian Romances, the Romantics Suspense Series, Transformed. And she is the host of her own podcast, which hopefully we'll get to talk about, Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women, her nonfiction work, blog, podcast, and her online course, Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women, can be found at her website, SuzanneFalter.com, and on she's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, The Works. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joshua. I just uh, love the idea of this podcast. So I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I know uh, you've had your own dreams. So I'm really excited to sort of hear how those been incorporated into life and what you saw those as. But before we get to those, because I know I'm really interested in those, I'm curious about your life before the death of your daughter, because I feel like through your bio, that's when everything sort of changed for you and, and listening and reading up on you on your website. So what was your life like before your daughter died? Well, I'll tell you, I was a writer for many years, and then I got kind of sidetracked into internet marketing. And I was all bent on making a whole lot of money and having a whole lot of success, which I wasn't really making so much money as a writer. And I, you know, sort of rode my horse off in that direction. And by the time 2012 rolled around, I was working 60 hours a week. I was really focused so much on money, I'd forgotten about the rest of life. I was very much carried away with my ego and my sense of my own kind of invincibility. And I didn't mind stepping on people if I had to, to get ahead. I was highly ambitious and let's not let's just say not in a super healthy way. Um, I was also living in San Francisco. I had dramatically changed my life and moved from upstate New York to California, left my marriage, come out as a lesbian, and I'd been in San Francisco Bay Area for almost two years. And my daughter Teal had come with me. And Teal was really the opposite of me. She was funny and sweet and very innocent and very pure and entirely unambitious. She would go off and work a job as a waitress and get a whole bunch of money in her pocket. And then she'd go to the airport and just go up and down the list of destinations and take off on an airplane and go somewhere in the world. And I don't, I mean, we weren't talking about flying from New York to Boston. We're talking about flying from New York to Bangkok. She would take her backpack and her guitar and her little busking sign, and she'd just go. A total free spirit whose greatest priority was tuning into herself 
and feeling what needed to happen next and feeling with deep, deep, tender compassion what was going on with all the people around her. This was what I was missing in my experiences in that at that time in my life. I, I had forgotten there were other people in the world. And I was really brutally overworking. So I had forgotten about self-compassion as well. Wow. That's uh that's interesting, right? Like seeing it in your daughter, because usually our kids would mimic us in ways, but it seems like she learned this from someone else. Like, so how did she become teal? Because you were not that. <laughs> well, Teal lived in the country. We raised her and her brother in a town of 500 people on Lake Champlain in a beautiful, beautiful, very natural place. But she was always somebody who was extremely sensitive and tuned into others. She just, she was the kid who would play with the, the girl nobody liked, you know? She was always wanting to give her things to everybody else. Her friends, as an adult, used to call her Quan Yin after the goddess of compassion. So there was a kind of just this was who she was, you know, <laughs> in spite of me. <laughs> and, and um, you know, uh, sometimes parents and children are different, but we were always very, very tight. This is what's kind of interesting. We were really, really bonded with each other. And it was not surprising that she came out to San Francisco, um, followed me out there because she wanted to be a healer. Now, she had been working as a blues singer and had gone to the Berklee College of Music, uh, probably the most prestigious place to learn blues singing in the U.S. And she had um, gotten a couple of years under belt and gone off to Austin, Texas and had a band and did gigs. And then she called up one day and she said, Mom, I don't want to do music anymore. And I asked why. She said, I think I'm supposed to be a healer. So she came to San Francisco with the idea that she was going to learn how to be a healer. And I don't know, shall I carry on with her story? Or, yeah, I'm interested yeah. in what she thought healing was, because music can be very healing, right? Well, so of course, it's, right? There's yeah. lots of kinds of healing. That's a really good point. And, and what's crazy about it is she was really, now I want to say she was an epileptic, okay? So she had meds that she was taking to prevent seizures, and she had been taking them for six years. And her epilepsy was very well controlled. She'd had a few seizures um, in overseas, and she'd had a few at home, but nothing too crazy. And what was happening around the seizures was this deep connection to kind of spirituality, really. And, you know, she the day before she collapsed, she called me up and she said, I think I'm going to have a really big seizure. And I said, uh, okay, do you want to go to a doctor today? Should, we, should I come get you and we'll go down to your neurologist? She said, no, no, no. They're just going to tell me they want to change my drugs. And I don't want to do that because these drugs make me feel closer to God. Now, at the same time, maybe six months earlier, she said to me, something really big is going to happen in the next four, six, eight months that's going to give me my healing gift. She really, she really uh, internalized this idea, and she was also a big meditator. So she was writing in her journal little little things she heard in her meditations all the time. And I remember uh, the fall before her collapse, she asked me, "Mom, I'm getting all these little phrases in my meditation. What should I do with them?" I said, "Oh, write them down in a notebook. Just you know, make a record of them." And I never thought, Joshua, for one minute that that was going to be it an extremely important notebook to me. But it really was. It really was. Because that notebook was filled with basically a lot of the information I needed to recover from her death. So she became a healer in the afterlife. I also want to say that another piece of this was the what happened was she um <laughs> i ended up having dinner with her the day after she said i'm going to have a really big collapse i had dinner with her in a restaurant in san francisco and it was a crazy thing that night because it, there was a talk about shamanism and she was interested in shamanism here she wants to be a healer so go listen to people who know about healing right so we're listening to this lecture by this shaman and they're talking about the bridge between worlds 
And she had walked into the restaurant an hour late. She was acting very spacey. She was not fully present. But I, in my self-involved state, did not recognize that she was in the early stages of having a seizure. I thought she was just kind of acting a little weird, but, you know, that was okay. Teal was a little unusual. And I just didn't, I was just not, not present enough to see what was going on. And I did get her a ride home to her house. And then I went off in a different direction after the, uh, after the dinner. But before I left, this, this lecturer was talking about how people travel between worlds, you know, and that the shaman's job is to connect uh, people with the afterlife. And every time he said that, she would turn around and look at me very intensely with this strange expression on her face. And I was like, okay, like she was sort of looking at me like, are you getting this? You know? So, okay. She goes off in one direction. I go off in the other. Two hours later, I get a call from San Francisco general hospital saying she's had a massive cardiac arrest and she's in critical condition. Nothing in my psyche even remotely prepared me for this possibility. When she was diagnosed with epilepsy, I was told, quote unquote, nothing bad can happen. In fact, it is not understood and never will be understood what the cause of her cardiac arrest was. Some doctors do think that she had had a seizure that had stopped her heart. And one in a thousand epileptics experience this. It's a very rare condition called SUDEP. And, you know, now there's consciousness of it. But back then in 2012, neurologists were not saying to their patients, you could potentially drop dead here. So <laughs> enjoy your life. Like nobody was saying that. It was suppressed information. Um, yeah. So I go to the hospital and there she is. And she's just covered from head to foot with all this thermal padding and, you know, monitors and wires and little machines are beeping all around her. And she's just totally ensconced in medical gear trying to keep her alive. They had restarted her heart, but she was in a coma. And as I looked at her, I had a profound awareness that she would die and that my life would change and that this healing work of hers would become mine and that this is what I had been working towards all of my life. But first, I was going to have to get my act together. I was really going to have to get my act together. I could not be the workaholic, the driven, ambitious person. Because the truth was, I didn't even like the work I was doing. It wasn't, it wasn't really like what I was born to do. It was just something I could do. All of that just came raining down on me. Here's my daughter. She's now going to die. My life is going to change. And I have to become the healer that she wanted to be. So six days later, we uh, took her off life support because it was finally deemed at that point that her brain had, had uh, sustained damage. She'd been in a locked bathroom, unconscious, without a heartbeat for 15 to 30 minutes, which pretty much fries your brain. So we couldn't, um, we couldn't, you know, she couldn't stay alive anymore. And we took her off life support but because of the way she had died, she was an excellent candidate for organ donation. So we agreed to donate her organs, and we left the hospital, and that was that. But, you know, a very interesting thing happened during that week. I woke up in the middle of the night, and I had, I'll never know if it was a dream or a waking vision or whatever, but I felt her around me. I kind of felt this sparkly energy. And I said, Teal? And she said, hi, Mom. And there she was. It was not, I couldn't, nothing I could see, but I could hear her. And it was as if, like I said, it was as if it was a dream. It was kind of a waking dream. And it was very clear to me she was trying to communicate with me. And I asked her what was going on. And she said, oh, I'm just trying to reconcile my heart and my soul. I really didn't know what that meant, Joshua. I'll tell you. <laughs> I was like, huh? What? You say what? And then she said something that was so Tealian, it just killed me. She said, don't rush me. <laughs> the reason that's particularly funny was because me, type A, driven, you know, 
get everything in order, make things happen, do stuff. I was always rushing my children. And here she is saying, don't rush me. And um, then she sort of dissolved and that was that. And I knew, you know, that we were in a process, a really big process. And a week before that, you know, it's so interesting. A week before her death or before her collapse, I had dreamt that I was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge with her in my little car and a big tsunami came up over the bridge and threatened to sweep us away with all the other cars. And we got inside the curl of the wave and the car rocked a little bit, but then the tsunami just receded and we were fine. And all the other cars were gone, but we were fine. And we drove across the bridge to the other side and that was that. And we were fine. And, you know, talk about a, a foreshadowing of what it's become. Because here we are going from one city to another place. We're on a bridge. It's that bridge that the shaman was talking about. And we are not devastated by the tsunami. We are just delivered to another place. And that's pretty much what happened as uh, the set last several years have gone on. And there have been many more dreams and so forth. Well, wow, that's a very interesting, so you said foreshadowing dream of what happened. When you're going through the process of grief, did you look back and get comfort from that at all? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You did, eh? Okay. I have to say, I have a practice and have for many years of writing my dreams down and then trying to get an interpretation on them. But it wasn't until she passed away that I began to even begin to understand what the tsunami dream was about and why Teal was in it and you know why were we going from one place to another and so forth. Symbolism is pretty clear there to me. You know, I had another dream maybe a month after her death in which my father who died in um, 1983 showed me a small blue painting. Now my father was an artist and um, he was kind of dressed in these sort of celestial robes and he was showing me this little painting and it was of kind of a, you know, a, 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 a isolated place out in nature, but it was all blue and it was very simple. And he was kind of nodding at me as if to say I was going into my blue period and that there was something important and healing about going into this blue period and to just allow it. And it was really good advice because I needed that. I was so uh, bewildered and shocked and just, I mean, I understood on one level what was happening and on another level, I could barely process it. That's interesting. Yeah, because as a workaholic, I would think that you would just want to continue to work and suppress the emotion. <laughs> you <laughs> <Right>? know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Did you try? <laughs> Oh, sure, sure. But it was literally impossible because one of the things that happens in grief is that the part of your brain that makes decisions and is the executive functioner is disabled. It's overwhelmed by the sensations you're experiencing. And I read, you know, about grief at the time, and I read that it was only going to dribble in as much as you could handle. Because if it dribbled in too much, you would just be on the floor and really disabled. So, I wrote, you know, I, I had already, I had just ended my business actually because it had so burned me out and I couldn't go on. And I had, was wrapping it up at the very time of her death. But of course, being a workaholic, I had another business all ready to go in the wings. And two months after her death, I tried to launch that business. And I could barely teach the courses that were the basis of the business. And not that many people signed up and the whole thing was sort of a dud. And, and um, I, I was just dragging myself through the broken glass of what my life was at that point. And I realized I, um, I needed to stop, you know, but I was afraid to stop. It's exactly what you said. Uh, I was afraid to stop. And finally, a friend, about a month later, a friend who was a business coach said to me, a Canadian, as a matter of fact, said to me, you've really got to stop. And I said, oh, I don't want to, but you can and you should. And that will be better for everybody if you do. And I could really see that. I could see that I had not really served the people well who were showing up to do my work. So I said, okay, I'll take a month off. And then that became two months. 
and that became six months, and that became two years. And I took two years off and didn't work. And I was very grateful that I had some savings in the bank. I'll tell you that because it was, and I, by then I was kind of living nowhere. I was living with friends and I, I, I was living very simply. And that's what I wanted. I just wanted to like have a little room. I could shut the door and do nothing all day. And that's what I did. That's so interesting from going one extreme to the other. What were the difficulties in that? Because I know you're trying to teach people about letting go and surrendering and that's basically what you're basically forced to do yeah was it difficult or was it just a natural process once you decided this was the the plan of action that it just was able to just take over such a good question i didn't have a choice you know at first at first it just felt like oh this is like this is what i needed i just needed to not work I could feel my whole body like opening up and throwing its arms out and saying, yes, yes, don't work, don't work. It was, it was really this overwhelming sense of letting go. But periodically, I was really perplexed and challenged by this idea that I needed to, uh, I needed to know what, quote unquote, this healing work was that I was supposed to receive. I wanted to get busy. And my guidance was really to lay low, you know. I was really being told to take time, to let it slow cook. I had a dream. Now, Teal, you know, was dropping in (laughs) into my dreams periodically and speaking to me very directly. And in uh, one of the dreams, she showed me quickly uh, sort of flash-cooked sort of nouvelle cuisine salmon, you know, that's somewhat uncooked, almost like sushi. And then the other, on the other hand, she had a plate of beautifully braised spare ribs. Now, you know, that takes hours, right? You get them in the grill or the smoker or whatever, and they, you know, they're just going to go along very nicely for some time. And of course, Teal was a foodie. You know, she was really <laughs> into cooking and food. So of course, she would have a, a food example in the dream. But she was showing me about slow cooking. And this was in regard to many things in my life, because at the time I wasn't working, but my other compulsive behaviors were rearing their head up. And I, and I didn't have a relationship at the time. And I was like, great, I'll lose myself in a love relationship. That'll keep me busy. (laughs) (laughs) Anything for distraction. Right. Right. And she tossed in the dream, she tossed that spare the the plate of spare ribs in the direction of somebody um that she'd known since she was a little kid who she was very very close to and there was a lot of love there you know and then um the the point was you can slow cook a a relationship or a um you know work or whatever you want to do and it's going to be so much more satisfying you know letting it slow cook that dream came in just about, oh, I don't know, a little less than a year after her death. And not long after that, I had another dream where she appeared in dr- like dreads. And they were kind of stylish dreads with little beads and little colorful threads in them. And she had Botoxed lips. She had big aviator sunglasses on. And she was just, you know, looking like a very tricked out glamour puss <laughs> and this was a, a girl who grew up in the country and kind of went around in you know gray t-shirts and jeans and sneakers with little holes in the toes i mean she was not a glamorous person at all but she was looking at me very intently as if to say come out from behind all of the masks you've been hiding behind and at the time i you know, I had hired a stylist before her death and I was, you know, wearing a lot of makeup and I was really focused on all my, my look. And, and um, after her death, I was, I was um, maybe not doing that as much, but I had silenced my telephone. I had turned my phone off and I barely had a phone at that point. I'd given up my smartphone. I just had this little simple disposable phone. And um, she said, you know, turn on your phone in the dream, meaning put yourself out there again. Don't be so shy to hide behind this false facade. Don't be so reluctant to hide from people. Get engaged with the world again. Now that was about, that was about um, 18 months after her death. And as 
time went on, a few months went by. Um, it was now about a year and it, it was now a year and seven or eight months after her death. And I'd been alone. I had actually a relationship that ended just a few years earlier that I'd been in that it actually forced me to give up my place to live. And, you know, that was a big upheaval right before her death. So uh, I had started to think, gee, maybe I should, you know, start dating again. And in the dream, she she popped in with a deck of goddess guidance cards. They're sort of oracle cards, right? And she offered me the deck, and I pulled a card out, and it said marriage on it. And she smiled at me. And I thought, well, that's amazing, you know. I, <laughs> What are you telling me, Teal? And sure enough, about five months later, one night I was sitting in a Korean spa, in San Francisco by myself. It was a Saturday night. It was about 7, 7.30. And I was going to go to a party down the street, which was a lesbian party. And by then I was, you know, living my out lesbian life and good old wild San Francisco, right? And I, I really I hadn't been dating much for the last few years, but I heard her with that marriage card. And I thought, well, I should go to this party. And I felt her around me as I was in this spa. And uh, I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm preparing you. And I said, what are you preparing me for? And she said, you'll see. And I walked down the street and I went into that party and I walked right up to a woman who I knew was somebody that was a soulmate. I literally had never seen her before in my life. But within a minute or two, we were talking and within 20 minutes or so, she was sitting next to me. And the next thing I knew, we were really, I was just fascinated with her. And now she's my wife. And we've been married for uh, three years now. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> you, have, you have some wild dreams that uh, people can only dream about. Uh, that's that's fascinating. So fascinating. Well, and and what is really interesting is I was still not working at this point. I was wanting to work, but I wasn't there yet. And, um, you know, I, I, this was by now, this was 2014. This was a, about two years after her death, almost like, you know, 22 months after her death. And I had just tried to relaunch this failed business that I didn't want to do, but I couldn't think of what else I was supposed to do. And it was still unclear to me, what am I supposed to be doing? What is this big transformational thing I'm supposed to do around Teal's healing? And I was pushing, you know, I got back into pushing and striving and trying to overwork my way through it. And uh, I had launched this, this, um, I had relaunched my old business and it had been successful at the time uh, you know, at a particular time, it was a course, it was a training course. And I had put it up online, and I had built this whole learning area. And what is fascinating is, you know, a bunch of people bought into it, I had this successful sort of 24 hour launch. And then the next morning, I woke up, and the site had been hacked into and the learning area had been totally corrupted. And people started dropping out. And one by one, every person who purchased the course dropped out within the next 48 hours. And the site was hacked into five times in the next week. The person who was coding and doing, you know, trying to fix it every time got malware in their computer that started to eat all their systems. It was really bad. So I was like, okay, surrendering, take it down. Don't do that work. Not right. And then I had to go back to not knowing. And what am I going to do with my life? I'm telling you, Joshua, it was a huge question mark. So... The next teal dream came along. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> so I woke up. I didn't wake up. It was like a waking dream. You know, sometimes you're in that sort of, I'm not quite conscious, but I'm dreaming so I can remember my dream state. Yeah. I was lying in bed. This is maybe um, two months after the failed business launch. And I saw a bath, the bathroom down the hall in the house I was staying in. The door was shut, and there was incredibly bright white light pouring out around the edges of the door, and the door was shut, and I knew Teal was in there. Now, you remember, she collapsed in a locked bathroom, so this is a very relevant detail. The light was pouring out of the bathroom, and I knew she was in there, and I said, okay, honey, is that you? <laughs> she said, yes. I said, why won't you let me see you? 
And she said, because I don't want you to get distracted. And I said, okay, do you have a message for me? She said, you are whole and complete and ready to go back to work. I took that in, thanked her very much. And about five or six days later, I was offered out of the blue a writing project that I'm still doing in which I write fiction for an investor. And I had published fiction earlier in my life, but you know, writing and speaking, this is my true work. And it, it is fiction and it is this nonfiction as well. And here was somebody offering to pay me to do what I love to do. And they still do. And I still do it. So that was the beginning of me actually finding my way back to work and, and having the self-compassion and the self-care to really um, sink into what I need to be doing. You know, around that time also, this is, this is where this story really gets interesting. I began to hear from the woman whose heart, who received Teal's heart and her kidney, who is a young woman, just a little older than her, um, who is now, uh, she's in her early 30s, and she's a cardiosonographer at a hospital in um, Northern California. And she is an amazing young woman. And in some interesting ways, somewhat like Teal. She's a very compassionate, very sensitive person. So I had connected with her. We'd actually spoken on the phone. And she's a very sensitive soul, so she was not rushing this process to get together. But of course, I was still back somewhat in my inner striver, so I was trying to figure out what's the best way to share the work with this young woman? How do I do this? What, you know, blah, 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 blah. My mind is going like crazy, right? So around this time, I had pulled out a Ouija board. Oh, gosh, Ouija boards. What can I say? But I pulled one out, you know, and I got a friend, put her hands on the Ouija board. When you're me. desperate, you're desperate, right? <laughs> <laughs> These are the things we're pushed to. So I'm on the Ouija board with my pal, and we're talking to Teal. And, you know, she shows right up and spells her name out. And she's, you know, I'm trying to get clarity about, you know, should I invite her to speak with me? What should I do? And she was like, give this poor woman some space to show up, right? Um, at the same time, I was cranking away on a, on the beginnings of a book, and I was writing a memoir about all of these encounters I was having and this healing path I was on and how it was pushing me, you know, I was learning self-care and so forth from it. And as I was writing this book, I be I I kept thinking I was getting to the end of it, but I couldn't quite figure out the ending. Well, interesting. As I was on the Ouija board that night, my sister, my sister who lives in Kentucky, had a vision of Teal. And she woke up with this sense that Teal was around her. She's like, Teal? <laughs> and and it's very interesting and relevant because my sister used to work as an organ donor um, coordinator, an, a transplantation coordinator. So she really knew about the field, right? So she's lying in bed and she's getting this message from Teal. She said, do you have a message for me? And Teal's message was, tell my mother her book should be about organ donation. So that was interesting. I had to factor that in. That was 2015. It wasn't until like 2018 that I finally figured out, hey, yeah, the book's supposed to be about organ donation. And by then I have an agent who's saying to me, shouldn't your book be about organ donation? And by then I'm giving talks and I'm, I'm, um, giving them with, I'm giving them about organ donation and transplantation and my experience as a donor mother. But then I begin giving them with the mother of this young woman, Amara, who got Teal's heart and kidney. And now Debbie, who is my co-speaker, she and I give these talks uh, in different parts of the country. So not surprisingly, Debbie starts having dreams about Teal. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> my wife and I met Debbie and Amara in 2017. We met on the beach where we scattered Teal's ashes, which is where Amara wanted to meet us, which just blew me away. I thought it was so sensitive and so beautiful. And um, not long after that, it, the minute I met Debbie, I knew we were supposed to do this work together. It was just like a real kind of coming together. Uh, we, we have such speaking chemistry. It's, it's just kind of a fascinating thing. And we've become dear friends. So she has a dream where she feels Teal around her. And Teal says to her, you know, I'm a Sagittarius too. 
And as it turns out, her birthday is right near Teal. So Teal pops in and gives her these little messages, including one about how she is supposed to be out there helping women as well. So this is, um, I could go on and on. <laughs> it's so interesting. And it's so amazing how you have so many experiences when it comes to dreams especially with Teal, I'm guessing you've had other ones without Teal that have helped you too, because you're so oh, yeah. aware of the symbolism and how it relates to your life. Oh, yeah. That then other people around you start having these experiences too. And I, I think it's just phenomenal. I think it's an amazing story. That, it is an amazing of course, story. I, I want to continue to hear about how it ends. <laughs> well, and how it ends is now, um, you know, the self-care piece was a big piece of this because what I had to do was start to learn to take care of myself. And um, I felt that Teal was healing me by showing up and guiding me. In many dreams, she was just hugging me or holding me or reassuring me. Or she, one of them, she was eating very dark chocolate yogurt while I was having a little cup of plain yogurt. And it was like, mom, quit being so austere because I was being very <laughs> austere. In another one, we were staging a flower show exhibit and she showed up with all these armloads of beautiful blooming daffodils. And I had put some little kind of sad twiggy things in the ground, you know? So she was showing me to embrace life. Mm. She was showing me that I could, excuse me. Um, she was showing me that I could get out there and sort of seize life and bring joy and, and, you know, sensory satisfaction back to my life that I didn't have to be this sad grieving person for the rest of my life. And um, as time went on and I began to, I kept working on this book, the first thing that happened was I realized it was two books, that there was a book about self-care that really used some of her journal entries and, and talked a lot about the actual practicality of all this self-care that I had learned after her death. Because let me tell you, self-care was not my middle name. I literally used to think, oh yeah, uh, I have great self-care. I get a massage every quarter. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it, Joshua. I mean, didn't really do much for myself besides that. And I and I began to realize self-care was about setting boundaries. And it was about knowing what I wanted and providing it. And it was about mostly slowing down. And as you said, there were many, you know, healing dreams and visions and ideas and inspirations that all came to me as I began to really heal, not just from Teal's death, but my whole life and all the dysfunctionality that had led me into these compulsive behaviors like overwork. And, you know, I also had financial problems I had to sort out. And I got help. I went to support groups. I, I, and I write about that in the book. I write a lot about having to get the courage together to ask for help and to understand that you deserve it. And that sometimes, you know, what I, what I know now about extremely busy women, having been one, is we get out of balance because we forget that we are precious and that we matter. And the worst thing we do is we overproduce. And we think that everything we do has to be perfect. We think everything we do has to be produced far more excellently than anybody else would. And, and so in doing, we lose the little bits of relaxation and ease that our life could have. You know, just because you have a job and a small child doesn't mean you have to be frantically busy. It could mean you set your life up to get help with just enough so you can take some time for yourself. It could be that you have other ways to deal with the pressure besides, say, drinking a whole lot of Chardonnay or, you know, drowning in chocolate. It's like, there are ways to deal with life that are cope, make it copable, no matter what you're going through. And that's what I really learned in that two-month period that I put into this book. And now, as I speak, what, what is really interesting about Debbie, Debbie also went through a whole, she went through eight years of not taking care of herself because she was trying to keep her daughter alive. Her daughter uh, had congestive heart failure and was literally almost died three times and had countless surgeries. Debbie was having to go from the Sierras 
four hours south to San Francisco every time her daughter had to be hospitalized because that was the only place where the care was sophisticated enough to really help her. That's where her cardiologist was and her heart transplant team, et cetera. Finally, she got her new heart and Debbie's life changed. And suddenly she looked around and realized she was in a lousy relationship. She was doing a job for an abusive boss. She didn't have any time for herself. And she even needed a hip replacement. The woman got a hip replacement within four days of her daughter's final sign-off from her doctor. <laughs> Suddenly, the relationship and the job ended. She fell in love with a new guy. She got a much better job. I mean, this is a story of self-care coming as a result of crisis. Now, I want to say to anybody listening to this, if you feel your self-care is poor, you do not need a crisis to put, push the reset button. And that's why I wrote uh, The Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care, because it's really um, the, tool, the toolbox for going in and redesigning how you're going to live this life so it really works for you. That's what I got to do in pulling myself together after Teal's death. Wow. I think it's amazing. I think the whole story is amazing. And then then meeting the donor. I don't know if that's common or not. Is it common meeting the individual? It can um, happen. I don't, I, can, eh? I wouldn't say it's common. What's really yeah. unusual is to strike up a true friendship. <laughs> and it's particularly <laughs> unusual that we're both people who are speakers and who can go out and actually mm -hmm. communicate about this with people in a yeah. way that is um, meaningful. One, or, and have or, learned and have learned like similar lessons in I know. the aftermath. That's amazing. I know. I know. And, and just, you know, it wasn't bad enough that Debbie's daughter had this terrible disease that she, that really, you know, took her through the ringer for eight years. Then her house burned down in paradise, California, and she lost everything. She lost her, her place of employment. She lost her home in the worst wildfire in California history. And that was just last year that today's the uh, one year anniversary as a matter of fact. So, you know, she knows and what, what I love about this woman is how inspiring and resilient she is. People say I'm resilient. Well, I think Debbie is far more resilient than I am. She's really rocking it. And, and that is not just denial of grief. That is embracing grief and going into it with an attitude of what can I learn here? How can I change here? What can I bring to the table that will help me? and then potentially help other people. You know, mm -hmm. they have a phrase in the grief circuit that probably other people have said on this podcast, you either get better or you get bitter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I chose better. <laughs> <laughs> really needed to. Yeah, it's really based on where you are in that moment because there's probably times you're bitter. And then somehow it changed to better. And you're like, like where did that come from? Because I know when my dad uh, died it was three months there that you know there's just nothing you yeah. know nothing joyous and then all of a sudden i had a dream of him and the world came back and new purpose new life and it's just like it's amazing how certain events and certain timings of things can help us without us knowing it you know and i think that's where your surrender comes in is that you feel that there's something else beyond you that can help, right? Like we don't know the answers, but if we keep our eyes open, like the, the, what we need will come to us soon enough. I have to say that because I had that vision of Teal in the, when I was in the hotel while she was in her coma before she'd actually, her life had actually ended. And she was saying to me, I'm reconciling my heart and my soul, which I now understand means I'm getting ready to give my heart up. You know, right. Um, I understood that there was a purpose from the very beginning, you know, and I feel really fortunate that I've had as much connection with her as I have. I will say I never have experienced the anger that a lot of people go through with death. I, I just never have felt it. I always felt like it was important that it was what needed to happen. It didn't mean I didn't grieve. I've been hugely sad. I, I cried for two years straight. I have to have a box of Kleenex in my car so I could sob while I drove, you know? 
but it didn't mean I was angry. I, I, I mean, they say anger at God is a big phase you go through with grief. I never experienced it. And I was in a, I was in a really great support group for people who lost kids. And there were people in that group whose children had died through various different means. And uh, we were all different, but we were all united by this particular horrible experience. And I have to say, you know, not only did I have the fortune to feel very connected with her, but the transplant, I, I was in that group at the time that I connected with Am Amara. And when I came back to the group and reported and read her letter, she wrote this incredible letter to us about how moved she was to know who Teal was and how she would have been friends if given the chance with Teal, you know, and that she would never take her heart and her kidney for granted. I read wow. these things and the people in the group said, she's still alive. Teal's still alive. And that's what we all want when we lose a child. It's like we want some way for this person to still be alive in our life. But by doing this work, by sharing her journal, by telling these stories, uh, by, by writing these books and doing these talks, I am keeping her alive. And I feel very, very deeply that the rest of my life is about sharing Teal's legacy and living her legacy, really understanding that level of compassion that she had, you know, really wow. connecting deeply with other people. Isn't that something? It's like it's, you can read something, but to embrace it, it's a different thing. And that's what your journey is about, is embracing the lessons that she left in that journal. She did, uh, and I did. And um, one of the things, I mean, it's really funny because <laughs> um, when I was an internet marketer, I was, you know, out in the front of the room. I was this kind of flashy, flashy babe, you know. And um, I wasn't particularly interested in people and their stories. Then I was given the message in a dream, again, to start a, a group on Facebook for women who wanted self-care. So I started this little self-care group for extremely busy women because this is, this is who this work is for. And I've been, I've, that group's been around more than a year now. And uh, there are a lot of women in it, and they share very vulnerable things and we work, I work very hard to keep that a safe space. And I interact with absolutely everybody who hosts. And I feel I'm doing Teal's work there because I can really, you know, they're, they're sharing hard things. People go through such hard things in their lives, you know. I mean, you'd think losing a child is terrible, but geez, I've read a lot of terrible stuff. And, and it's, um, you know, people are having to heal from terrible physical problems while keeping jobs so they have enough money for food. And, you know, and we're in there encouraging each other and we're in there sharing ideas for how we can all have better self-care. And it's a big conversation that is so, so much about this compassion and this, you know, feeling for other people. And it, it is, um, it is actually something I do all the time. You know, I'm all day long. I'm in there all the time. And I realized, God, that's different for me, you know. And I guess that is part of the teal work. Um, I'm also singing gospel music, which is really fun because she was a singer and she was a great singer and she loved the blues and she was a trained blues singer. And the gospel has blues elements to it. Um, but I feel so much at home in this gospel choir I sing with. And the degree of joy that I see on the audience members as we're singing and we're really hitting our stride and we're like really doing it right. And people are just in the aisles dancing and they're just joyous and free. And you know, that's Teal's work. That's it right there as well. And, and, and I feel like I just kind of followed the breadcrumbs to that, you know? Yeah. With those people who change us, they're always a part of us. And even if they're living or dead, right? Like it's just, if yeah. they've changed us in some way that we couldn't have been any other way. And I think this is so beautiful <laughs> about who Teal and also your new friends with like Deb and, and stuff, uh, Deb, yeah. Debbie, Debbie, Debbie yeah. yeah. On what that's brought you in your life and, and have you learned to see life a lot differently? Um, yeah. Because really, I mean, you know, this, like you're, you're a workaholic because we're not trained and there's nothing in schools to say this is the way people push the workaholic 
you do more, you get more kind of thing. <clears throat> People, And so I think it's great that you're going through this journey and you're able to share it. And I'm so happy that the dreams were a part of it. It just sort of is like showcases the importance of dreams in people's lives. And oh, I yeah. don't know, would you say dreams have been an influential part in you being who you are today? Oh, 100%. 100%. Even as technical as, you know, February of this year, after I'd already done my book deal and I was getting ready to turn in the first draft of the Extremely Busy Woman's Guide, I was woken up by a dream with my guide saying, don't forget to put Teal's quotes in there. <laughs> so quick revision, put all her quotes in there that were relevant and um, off the book went. You know, it's like every day it's um, it's it's a, a roadmap to a uh, greater tuning in to the inner soul and the inner spirit and, and what we are here to do. Because if we're not evolving and changing, we're not paying attention. You know, we're just not. That's our that's our job, even if the evolution is towards more joy and happiness. Yeah. Well, I sort of see that too, like the joy and also like understanding what love is. I feel that for me personally, yeah. it keeps changing every year as I learn more things about self-care and love and, and being in joy. Things start to change. And so my whole idea of love has changed. As you said, setting boundaries is a part of that, which when I first learned about love, it wasn't. Right. Like it's more of that you give everything. Right. But now it's, <laughs> right? like, it's not true. It's not true. Mom, you lied to me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, um, and and yeah. and healthy um, kind of a healthy selfishness is really what we're mm -hmm. talking about here. But it, but selfishness is a negative word. So maybe a healthy self-compassion would be a better way to put it. It's um, returning your focus to the necessity of tuning in. And of course, writing, um, you know, writing out your dreams or processing your dreams however you can is such a key part of it. And I really love what you said about love because, you know, I didn't know what love really was either until uh, this phase of my life. I, I knew, you know, I had a loving marriage and I had these great kids and I knew that level of love. But then as I began to love myself more and I began to go more deeply into self-care and really practice the self-love of tuning into what my needs are, understanding how to ask for them, taking the steps to give myself a more balanced life, stopping the compulsive behaviors, owning the relationships, own, I mean, uh, owning the emotional experiences. As I began to take those steps, then I could relax and I could really um, surrender to the beauty of life and these deep relationships that are possible when you really go into this place of balance and wholeness. And that is what Teal was teaching me because that's how she lived. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. So I'm curious since this is, you know, we're in December and the holidays are coming. Can you talk about maybe self-care over the holidays for someone who's grieving right oh. now? That's a great idea. Well, yeah, here's the thing. You need to have full permission to go into a room with a door and lie down or sit down and suck your thumb and weep if you need to. I remember going, I was in Paris uh, two years after Teal's death for Thanksgiving, and I was alone, and I went to visit a friend who had me for Thanksgiving dinner very graciously, and I got to her, I got to her house, and I had to just go lie down on her bed and cry for about 45 minutes before I could join the party, and I did. And I said, do you mind if I use your bedroom? And she said, no, go right ahead. <laughs> Which was pretty weird in France. They're not, they're, not, they're not like, you know, us American slobs with all our emotions. But, or, I don't know, I can't speak for you folks. You all seem so extremely well balanced and, you know, whole in Canada by comparison. But <laughs> I'll say that, uh, I'll say that the other thing is it's really important not to isolate yourself. And of course, it's very easy when you're really feeling a lot of grief to not want to be with people. But, you know, people can be a, a welcome and necessary distraction sometimes. And um, you may need to balance being with people and being alone, you know, not, not too much of one or the other. And you really need to be around people who are not going to constantly be saying, oh, how are you? Are you okay? Or ignoring everything as if everything's fine. We want the friends who are sensitive enough to, you know, offer us a plate of turkey and a little stuffing and let's go watch the game. 
and, you know, give us a compassionate hug if we need it. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, really good friends know what we need and they can be either based on what, what you want. And I think that's great um, when it comes to that. And I wish more people had people like that around them. Mm -hmm. And the truth is many people don't. And, and so it's really, I like what you said about slowing down, um, Mm -hmm. taking that time and allowing your emotions to come up when they need to, and to have the courage to feel them in a crowd, as you said, right, you had to leave and that's okay, but have the courage to feel them. Right. That's yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the ways you can give yourself the courage to feel your emotions, and this is just a tip for any time of the year, holiday or not, if you're in grief, is to create an altar to the to the beloved person that you've lost or dog or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I made a whole lot of altars for Teal. I just actually built her a little Day of the Dead altar on her mantle. But I, um, I really found my altar to Teal was a place I loved to hang out. It just felt so calm and it felt so, so soothing. And and to the degree that I think I mentioned I like to drive around and um, while well, I was grieving. So I also made my car into a mobile altar. And I um, my car happens to be teal colored. <laughs> and <laughs> I, made, I had a license plate made that says T-E-A-L-S-T-R, which means Tealster, which was her nickname when she was little. Oh, and, um, you know, I have a little, I have some little goddesses uh, because she loved goddesses on my dashboard. And I, for a while, I had a little framed picture of her stuck to the, stuck to the glove compartment. And I have little flower petals in there and all sorts of things. And I would play her music or healing music and drive yeah. around. And, and it was so much fun because I felt like um, I was with her. You know, it was like it was like an encased environment that I could dedicate to her. And and, you know, you might even put a few of their objects in the back seat or whatever. It's like it's a way to engage with their memory and just move with it and grieve with it and remember the happy times and maybe even laugh a little and and cry a lot. And, you know, just be just be in this space of grieving, which is an extremely profound and healing place to be. I'll tell you. That's a really interesting thing with the license plate. When did you get that done? Oh, right after she died. And, um, you know, I took one of her little phrases from her notebook that I mentioned earlier, and I put it on the license plate holder. So it says, give fearlessly and you shall never want. And every once in a while, somebody will stop me and say, I love your license plate holder. (laughs) Yeah. And in fact, it was really funny because when I picked up the license plate that said T-E-A-L-S-T-R from the DMV, this was now about four or five months after she died. It was about four months, I guess. And I went to pick it up and the very friendly lady at the counter said, oh, Teal Star, what's that a reference to? And I like broke down sobbing. <laughs> I told oh. her what it was. <laughs> and then she started to cry. And I was like, I got the DMV going. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Lordy. But yeah, that, I think it's the first time I ever heard of that. And I think it's such a great idea to keep the memory alive and have that continuing bond. And I love how you use your car and your home. There's yeah. different places. And yeah. do you do anything specific on during the holidays to memorialize them? Do you have like well, a Christmas bulb or something that goes on the tree? Well, that's a nice idea. I haven't actually done that. Um, I'll tell you, uh, Day of the Dead really feels like the teal day because she would have loved that. And it, and uh, Day of the Dead is a Mexican holiday, um, Dia de los Muertos, and people have these ofrendas. They're little altars that are made, or they can be quite large, actually, that are made to the memory of the dead person. And you put their physical objects. I mean, I, I have her guitar picks and a lock of her hair, and I have her water bottle and, you know, a scarf that she wore, and I have various... Items and you could, you know, I could have made a really big ofrenda with her guitar and her busking sign and all kinds of things. Um, I've seen them with people's glasses and their favorite foods and you know a plate of their favorite, you know, tortillas or whatever. I that's just really cool, I think, because it's a special holiday where you make this temporary altar and you really are with the spirit of that person that day and you're thanking them and you're really honoring them. In the, my Mexican friends tell me about going down to the cemeteries and dancing around the graves and playing music and having parties and people are drinking and it's celebratory. That's what yeah. I love about that. 
at Christmas, um, I don't have a particular Christmas ritual around Teal's uh, life or death. And I don't, I mean, you know, I might, we might say a little prayer. Uh, we have a, we have um, a mixed marriage. My wife's Jewish and um, well, she's a cultural Jew and I'm not really, I'm, I'm kind of a spiritual, not religious person. So we don't have um, a big ceremonial thing. We really do more music around Christmas and that's a very teal thing, you know. I mean, you're making me think maybe now I should have a little memorial teal Christmas thing because her birthday was a week before Christmas. So we're probably more likely to remember her then. Right. Wow. So interesting. I like it. I just like chatting. I know we could, I could continue talking with you oh, for yeah. a while, right. but uh, <laughs> we should only make this about an hour and a bit. Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> yeah. So, the, one of the last questions I'd like to ask is the question we ask everyone is that if you could have a dream over the holidays of Teal or of someone else that has died, and what would that dream, what dream would you want to have? Gosh, what a great question. Well, you know, some of my favorite dreams with Teal, we've been hanging out together and we've been watching TV. I'd like a dream where Teal and I are cooking and playing music together because those are my times when I visit with her. And, um, you know, that would just be really fun. <laughs> so what kind of uh, cooking would you do around the holidays? Would it be like, oh, is there like a Christmas dish or something? She that you was, she was the queen of chocolate cake. Let me Ooh. tell you, that girl could make a chocolate cake with a beautiful kind of um, burnt caramel brittle around the outside, a deep dark chocolate buttercream frosting, a really nice chocolate layer cake, very light, multiple layers, you know, she mm. could really do that. And she knew how to decorate. She'd studied cake decorating as because, oh, you know, she was all about fun, right? So let's just go right into the frosting. Yeah, that's probably what we would make is uh, a really great chocolate cake. And now I'm thinking oh. I have to do that. <laughs> You're making me hungry. I want to. I know. <laughs> that's that's cool i you know hopefully you have that dream and hopefully she gives you some more quotes because uh the journal will run out sooner and later and so hopefully you can get some more quotes through your dreams do you know that there are more than uh 250 quotes in that notebook wow i'm gonna run out anytime soon i'll tell you well, you can make one of those day calendars with a, yeah, almost a quote every day yeah <laughs> thinking about it when, once the memoir is uh, out there, we'll see what comes from it. But uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I just really love sharing this work with people. It is her legacy, and she was so extraordinary that it's really worth it. A very unusual person, and I was privileged to be her mom. Hmm. That's nice. It's, it's beautiful to be able to talk to you, and I could see that from how you talked. It'd be interesting to have talked to you whenever like before all this happened to see who you who you were before <laughs> my nasty gnarly former yeah because I, I really do like seeing people change but you've already changed right so it's like yeah, I'm sorry you know like, <laughs> it's like, like, i like it but you know like i don't <laughs> i can't imagine you the other way kind of thing right? uh, well great <laughs> all right so um if you could Talk about a little bit about you know, where people can find your books, where they can find you and your podcast, which we didn't. Oh, get yeah, I'm happy to share it. My podcast is called Self-Care for Extremely Busy Women and Men You Can Listen To. It's uh, really uh, it's on every major platform, podcast, you know, Stitcher, iTunes, etc. The book is called the Extremely Busy Woman's Guide to Self-Care, and that's on Amazon. And if you go by my website, you can sample the first four chapters for free from the homepage, which is SuzanneFalter.com, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-F-A-L-T-E-R.com. Um, and I also have this awesome Facebook group, which is so great. It's... um. The self-care group for extremely busy women that is just for women and come on in and hang out you um let us know you'd like to join and we'll pop you right in there and uh it's a promotion free space where people can really share their feelings and they can support each other so i'm just delighted to have spent this time with you joshua it was a great show you've got here and such an interesting subject i'm really into it so thank you well, thank you. You had so much to share. And I'm always excited when people have these stories because usually you don't get a chance to share them yourself. 
Mm-hmm. And for me to hear them, it's just like, yes, like this is out, like this is out there. I know the stuff's there, but it's yeah. like, to get someone to talk about it openly, that's the beauty because so many people don't ask the questions or don't may not understand the significance of these dreams in people's lives. And yeah. you can just just by what you've said, we spent like 50 minutes just on <laughs> these dreams <laughs> for such a big part of your life. And it just showcases the importance that these dreams can have in someone's life as they move through grief, but also the world after that. So I just think it's amazing that you've had these experiences and you're willing to come here and share. So thank you. Thank you. That's fantastic. Great conversation. All right. Just to end with our stuff now, if you want to know more about these grief dreams, uh, you can go to griefdreams.ca and there's a bunch of stuff on there from common questions I answer. Um, We also added a donation button there. So if you want to donate to the the podcast, uh, you're welcome to do that. We also have a Facebook group too. Uh, it's not, it's for everyone, not just women. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, there you just basically you can share your dreams that you've had of your deceased loved ones. And you can also comment on other people's uh, dreams that they shared. So if this is of interest to you, it's a great place to go. Also Twitter and Instagram at grief dreams. And then you can also find us at, at grief dream at the grief dreams podcast um, on Instagram too. So with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.